Well, we've been in a series that we've entitled uh, Living in the Shadow of the Cross. And uh, I don't know if I've ever told you the reason why I've done this series, uh, but the big reason is is that uh, it's a kind of a it's a topical series in, in many ways. The cross is the topic; it's the theme. I don't do these very often, uh, but it's one that I think is uh, well worth uh, taking a look at. And what I did was I took uh, a look at the New Testament that talks every passage that talks about the cross. Paul says, uh, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, I boast only in the cross. Next week we'll talk about the power of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We talked about the necessity of the cross at the uh, beginning of our series. We talked about the offense, the shame of the cross when we uh, talked about Christ enduring uh, the cross uh, last week. And today we look at uh, a subject that is very important that I wondered how it would fit together on a Palm Sunday because today we talk about the way of the cross. Now, for many of you, you know that uh, baseball season starts this week. If you didn't, it starts this week. And I have been asked many a times why I am such a great fan of the north side and why I uh, don't like the south side. And I've answered the following way, and I'll do it just so you are aware of it. And yes, there's a point to this. And that is, is I've never been a big Southside fan, especially ever since they won the World Series. Now, the reason why isn't because of the Sox. The Sox are good guys, okay? They're average guys, nothing of great quality, but they're guys nonetheless, okay? I got nothing against guys in white uh, and black pinstripes, okay? But my struggle is, is what happened during the time of the World Series? Because it seemed like uh, White Sox uh, people could not fill their stadium if their lives depended on it. And yet when the team started to get good, all of a sudden people started flocking to that stadium. And everybody began to talk about how great the White Sox were. And I, I struggled with that. I said, wait a minute. Where were all these fans when they were bad? See, the team that I root for, we've been bad for a long time, but we're, but we're faithful. We hang with them. Now, we may be stupid, but we are loyal. And one of the things I don't like, I don't like in any sport, especially with the White Sox, as I believe, and you can disagree with me, there are a lot of fair weather fans. I remember talking with people that love the White Sox. They said, I'd say, name three White Sox players for me. They couldn't do it. I don't even like the White Sox, and I can name three White Sox players. Are you a fair-weather fan this morning? Are you one who roots for your team, maybe in the sports or maybe in a uh, particular other um, athletic uh, arena? Or are you one who is loyal to your team? Are you a fair-weather friend, one who is by your friend's side when things are good, but when things start going bad, when, when the going gets tough, you seem to move away from them, kind of disengage from them because it costs you too much? Are you a fair-weather Christian, one who finds himself rooting for Jesus here on Sunday, but when it comes to the middle of the week, when it comes to when you're by yourself and you're the only Christian in your workplace, that you begin to move away from Jesus. You see, today we're going to look in point one at what I believe are a group of fair-weather 
Christians, fair-weather people who rejoiced and praised the name of Jesus, but then who moved away uh, from that commitment, who weren't there when the going got tough. And then I want to look at Luke 9.23 and give us a mark to hit. Because Christ is calling us to loyalty. Christ is calling us to commitment. Christ is calling us to total surrender. And if we're not doing that, oh, we may enjoy the highs that Jesus may bring, but we are missing out. In fact, we will see in Luke 9.24 that it says if we don't give ourselves over to Christ fully, that we may gain the whole world and yet we will lose our souls. You see, being a Fairweather fan isn't good enough in Jesus' eyes. Or it may be good enough in following a baseball team. And I'm sure even amongst the Cubs, there are Fairweather fans. But there can be no Fairweather Christians. And so today I want to look at the way of the cross. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you can't just be in halfway. But it's got to be all in. So let's look at our text this morning. I'm going to ask that you would look to Matthew chapter 21 as we stand. We'll read this famous narrative, of course, for this great uh, Sunday that we celebrate the entrance of Jesus in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And this is what Matthew tells us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone else says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now this took place to fulfill what was said through the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, see your kingdom comes to you, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on him, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Turn a couple pages over to your right to Luke chapter 9 for a moment. Luke chapter 9. Keep your thumb, if you can, in Matthew 21. That's our first point this morning. And then Luke 9. Another incredibly famous passage. And this is what it says in Luke 9, 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. 
And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we are reminded today of an incredible encounter in Jerusalem. But Lord, I would ask that this morning you would allow us to go more beneath the surface. We would be able to understand, even as Pastor Keith has already articulated, that the crowd that was so excited, so fired up, Lord, about your coming into the city, that they weren't anywhere to be found just a couple days later. Oh, Lord, we confess that we're a part of that crowd this morning. We sing praises to you. We stand up and announce your greatness when it's easy. But, Lord, if there are many in this place that are like me, then I know that many times I skirt away when you call me to deny myself and take up your cross. Lord, we need your help in this. We confess our unbelief. We confess our unwillingness to take up that cross. And we ask for your strength, your Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us. Lord, this is not a game and we recognize it. This was not a game to you for you laid down your life for us. It caused you great pain and great suffering. This is not something we can take idly and go on with our day. But we must be proactive and give all that we have to you. So Lord, open your word to us this morning. Speak to me in a powerful way that you may be brought glory, honor, and praise. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If we want to live in the shadow of the cross, then we have a choice that needs to be made. There are two ways that we can live. Matthew gives us one way. Luke gives us another. We need to compare and contrast those two lives, those two ways of looking at Christ. You see, as we look at these two passages of Scripture, we see two ways we can go. One is with a crowd that seems to have all the excitement and all the passion that crowds usually do to a life that is set apart and surrendered to Jesus Christ. Which one are you today? What kind of Christianity do you practice? The first one I want to look at involves the Sunday crowd. It involves the Sunday crowd. Turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 if, you're, uh, if you were in Luke. Matthew 21. Now, the text tells us at the beginning of the chapter that Matthew is going to articulate the events of that first Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry 
of Jesus Christ. Now, to give you some context, Jesus has been serving and ministering all throughout the area. And we know from the other Gospels that there is a growing tension that is going on between the chief priests and the Pharisees and Jesus. They don't like what Jesus is doing. They're not happy with all that is going on in Jesus' ministry. People are being converted from the chief priests and the Pharisees and the old way of life to Jesus. And there's no room for that. And so what happens is, is Jesus goes and he tells his disciples, we're heading back to Jerusalem. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. That would have been a, a bad decision if you looked at it from Earth's perspective. That was the central hub of the Pharisees. That was the central place of where all his opposition was at. And yet he says, it's time for us to go. For the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must go before uh, a trial. He must be laid down with his life put on a cross. And so we see, as our text brings us to Matthew 21, that there's a crowd that begins to form. Now, one of the other Gospels say that the result of the crowd came because of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Lazarus didn't live far from Jerusalem where the triumphal entry would have taken place. And there must have been a buzz going on. Lazarus, it seems, was a well-known individual. And word must have gotten out that Lazarus, who had been dead for days, now had been raised. That Jesus had come and called Lazarus from the grave. And so we see as Jesus enters into the city, a great multitude of people are there. Now, historians tell us that there were approximately 2 million people in the vicinity of Jerusalem. This is no small town. And it was even, it was even busier because at that time, one of the gospel writers tells us there's a festival going on. And people are excited. They're fired up. Jesus, this incredible Jesus, is here. He's come to Jerusalem. It's something important. Jesus is a VIP. He's someone that we need to know. And so what do they do? There's a first century pep rally that takes place. They gather. Jesus is placed on a donkey and a parade breaks out. And the parade then has people yelling and and crying out, not words of anger or words of uh, wrath, but words of love and affirmation. Glory to God in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What an exciting time. People quoting scripture, worshiping Jesus. Sounds like a great crowd, doesn't it? It sounds like our Sunday crowd. It sounds like us when we come to church. There's no words of anger. There are no words of of, uh, dispute. There are only words of affirmation. Jesus, you're it. Jesus, you're great. Jesus, let's sing about you. Jesus, let's read scripture about you. Let's talk about your fame and your renown. You see, we like those type of experiences. They give us goosebumps. They make us feel like we're a part of something. I wonder what the people were feeling that day. There must have been incredible excitement. And yet amidst all that excitement, something was missing. 
I want to look at that crowd for a moment. Because in this crowd, we see three different things that were a part of who they were. The first thing we see is that amongst this crowd, there were those who were spiritual. They were spiritual. These people were spiritual. What does that mean? They had a high regard for Jesus. Well, how do I know that? Can I read their heart? No, I can only read their actions. And what do we see? We see they had a high regard for Jesus. The mere fact that they would go and lay their cloaks on the ground and take branches and bring them down to the ground to cover the path of Jesus means they held Jesus in high esteem. The reason why we know that is because this was a a cultural thing that was done. In fact, uh, even during the first century, one of the great kings uh, in the Near East uh, made this his ongoing pursuit in life that everywhere he went, that palm branches and cloaks would be laid down so that the hooves of his horses would not touch dirt. Why? Because he was an important individual. And we see the people saying, Jesus, you're important. We'll put our coats on the ground. We'll place uh, branches on the ground to make sure that you have uh, a pathway, if you will, the first century version of a red carpet. But notice what else takes place. They hold a parade. Not a parade like we would, but a parade nonetheless. It seems that there were probably Jesus walking uh, or riding the donkey on the, the pathway of cloaks and branches and people on each side of them cheering and rooting for this coming king, as they said, this prophet later in the text. I don't know about you, but parades are fun. Parades are uh, enjoyable times. And parades are for a specific thing. Very important people. In fact, uh, uh, just this last year uh, out at Hinkley Big Rock, our girls basketball team uh, won the state championship. And how did I know that? Well, I didn't see it on TV. I, I, I heard about it. How? I walked out in my front yard and I could hear every siren of every local fire department and police department blaring. And I'm wondering what in the world must be going on? And I found out uh, through the neighbor, they said, the girls just won and they're ushering them into town and they want the whole town to know they're victorious. They've won. And so with the four fire trucks that we have in town (laughs) and one police officer, they made a bus and there was a parade to speak about the important people that were coming into town. These people were spiritual. Understand another thing about their spirituality. They knew the scriptures. They didn't have to be given cue cards, but they were able to say, Hosanna to the son of David. They're quoting Psalm 118. This was a rallying cry of Old Testament scripture that said, hey, we know what's going on. Jesus is important. Jesus is coming in the same way that King David did. This is important. Now, why would they have been so spiritual? Write these three things down. They're not in your outline. But they were spiritual because of three things. Number one, they had experienced um, great excitement. They had experienced great excitement. Who were these people? These people were individuals who had been a part of Jesus' ministry. They had been a part of the miracles and the power that they had seen. No doubt there were some that had seen Jesus heal those who were hurting. 
being able to allow those who were unable to walk to walk again, those who were unable to see to now have vision. There were those who had crippled hands and withered feet, and God and Christ Jesus fixed them through the power of God. There's no doubt they saw demon-possessed individuals who in convulsions would fight and, and scream at Jesus, and with a calm word, Jesus would say, depart from them. And the evil spirit would go. These people had seen Jesus in action. And it was a time of great excitement. Wherever Jesus was at, there was a chance that there would be a miracle that would take place. Some of these very people had listened to Jesus talk for a long, long time like your preacher does. And what happens? He talks so long that the word gets out and says, hey, these people are hungry. And he feeds 5,000. They had been a part of some great times of excitement. The second thing we see is that they were a part of a time of great enlightenment. They had experienced enlightenment, not only excitement. These weren't just a rallying crowd of people, but these people had come to know and to love the teaching of Jesus. Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had said, you have lived this way, but I command you, you must now live this way. People had been changed by the great commandment. People had been changed by loving neighbors as themselves. As forgiveness was preached and grace was proclaimed, lives had been changed. People had become enlightened. It doesn't take us long in our world to see how crowds love uh, public speakers and teachers. People will spend all kinds of money to listen to people who will motivate them out of the doldrums of their life, motivate them from bad habits to a powerful new level of living. So they experience excitement, enlightenment. But this group also experienced expectation. This was Palm Sunday. Now, it wasn't Palm Sunday that first day. Of course, that's where we get it. But it was to commemorate the Lord's triumphant entry. And what do they announce? They announce Psalm 118, the rallying cry of the Psalms. The nation of Israel was going to get their king. No longer would they be under the despised rule of Rome, but now they would have their own king. For 2000, over 2,000 years, uh, I'm sorry, for about 600 years, they had been waiting for the coming of a king in the line of King David and King Solomon. Since that time, we had seen the kingdom of Israel fall into shambles, find itself being ruled by others. And people were waiting for Messiah. They didn't know exactly what he was supposed to be because even as the gospel writers say, uh, the text would tell us that Jesus didn't fit the total bill. Jesus was to come on a horse waving a sword, and here he comes on a donkey. But there was enough there that that they said Jesus, I believe in Luke's uh, narrative of of the events, says that he was at least a prophet. Because people began to ask, who is this Jesus? And they said, he's a prophet. After 400 years of not hearing from God, maybe this was the time. This is what John the Baptist was articulating people to. Understand this, the crowd was spiritual. 
They'd experienced some things. Now, how does that work in our day and age? There are many today who are fair-weather Christians who are a part of the crowd. And being a part of the crowd doesn't mean that you haven't experienced anything. You've experienced plenty. That's what brings you back every Sunday. It's the enlightenment. It's the expectation. It's the excitement of what God is doing. They were spiritual. But notice they were also in a place of being spectators. They were in a position to be spectators. Now, we understand from the text that they had a part, but a very small part. We know that in a parade, there are two types of people. The people in the parade and the people that are watching the parade go by. And so they're watching Jesus live and do according to what his father had asked of him. And so these people find themselves in a position of being spectators. Is that where you're at this morning? Do you find yourself amidst a crowd with great excitement and great expectation of what God is going to do, and yet you're doing it from afar, looking at it from the outside, looking in, saying, wow, it looks great. Wow, there's a lot of neat things going on, but you're not personally experiencing them. It would seem that the crowd uh, was full of people that had watched Jesus. As I said before, many of these people probably came from Bethany where, uh, where uh, Lazarus was at and saw Jesus raise a dead man to life and just wanted to watch Jesus more, experience some of the excitement that has been around. And yet, that as far as they would go. For many of us here today, we find ourselves in a crowd experiencing great things, but experiencing them from afar. You hear me with great passion talk about my excitement about Jesus Christ, about what I've learned in the scriptures. And yet you yourself have no excitement for the scriptures. You yourself have not opened this word since last Sunday when I told you to open it up. Maybe you're experiencing it through your children as they come back from a conference like Dare to Share, excited about Jesus Christ, excited about sharing their faith, and yet you yourself watch from afar as they do that, but you yourself don't do that. Maybe your wife is coming back from a women's retreat, excited about how God would use her the same way that God used a woman like Esther, that God would use her in a profound way. And you look and say, well, I don't know how God has touched her. I I can see it. I don't know how, but I know I don't have that. And yet you stand in the crowd and you listen. And with great excitement, you see all that's going on. And yet you're a spectator, not a participant. I can tell you, being a spectating Christian is not good enough. It is not good enough. I learned early on in my teenage years that I was living vicariously through my parents' faith. My parents had a great faith, a strong faith, a vibrant faith. And I'd say, hey, I'm experiencing a lot of good things. As God blessed them, he blessed me. But what I began to learn as I grew up and as I made decisions on my own, I learned that I could not hold on to the coattails of my parents' faith. It's not good enough. I can't get up to heaven and say, well, hey, Jesus, uh, I'm Tim Bedall. I am the great middle son of Bill and Michelle Bedall. You know who I am because you know who they are. No, my friends, that won't work. 
For we will all stand before the judgment of God alone based on our own merits of what we've done in the body. Can't be a spectator. Now notice the other thing we see of this crowd. This group, this crowd had a passion that was short-lived. It had a passion that was short-lived. The text tells us that there were multitudes of people, probably at least hundreds, if not thousands. Now we believe this to be the case because the Scripture says that as a result of what took place at the triumphal entry, that all of Jerusalem was stirred. The idea here is that literally there was a buzz going on. And so we know that this probably wasn't, you know, the little bicycle parade that the kids do uh, in uh, most every town these days where they get together and 20 or 30 kids get their bikes together and do a little parade and nobody really is aware of what's going on. This is a big thing. This is a big event. It probably closed down one portion of Jerusalem. Historians believe that Jesus entered through the sheep gate. How ironic that the great Lamb of God would enter Jerusalem through the sheep gate. And yet there is a buzz that has transpired. There's excitement. So thousands, multitudes likely of people find themselves rejoicing, lifting up the name of Jesus, proclaiming how much they love Jesus and what Jesus is going to do. They want to see Jesus, and they're happy to be seen by others as they praise Jesus. That's Sunday. But what happens on Thursday, on Friday? I know you know the text, so I won't turn there. But when Jesus finds himself in the garden, where are the multitudes? When Jesus is asking for some to pray, where are the crowds? When Jesus is arrested, where is the crowd, the multitude of people who were there praising God that Sunday before, just mere days before? Where are they? Where is Jesus when he is hauled into a kangaroo court by the high priest? Where are the the ones who could announce with great passion, I've seen Jesus raise the dead. I've seen Jesus perform miracles, cast out demons. Where are the multitudes? The text tells us Jesus stood alone. Where was the multitudes of people when Jesus was carrying his cross to Golgotha? Where were the multitudes of people when Jesus was beaten and abused? Where were the multitudes of people, the crowds that sang Hosanna in the highest when Barabbas was being cried out? And when they were crying out about Jesus and saying, not Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but crucify him, crucify him. Where were the crowds? when they hung him up on a tree. The text tells us there were a couple women and the apostle John whom Jesus loved there. Where are the thousands? Where are the hundreds? Where are the dozens of people who were a part of that crowd? The answer is their passion had disappeared. When you're a Sunday crowd type of Christian, The problem with your Christianity is it runs out of juice because it's not based on the grace and mercy of God. It's based on you and the enlightenment and the expectation and the excitement that you experienced on Sunday. 
because you're a mere spectator. You're watching. And you find yourself running out of gas. There's no doubt that there are some people here today who will announce with their hearts, Amen, Christ Jesus, on Sunday. And with their voices on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, will find themselves not speaking well of Jesus at all. Now, why did they love this Sunday crowd? Why did they love Jesus so much? Here's the answer. Were there some true believers a part of the triumphal entry? Yes, there were. Of course, the disciples were a part of it. I'm sure they were in on the action, excited about what God was doing. And I'm sure no doubt that there were some in the midst that loved Jesus and were willing to follow him. But here's the problem. Most scholars believe that the reason why the triumphal entry took place is that the people saw in Jesus what they were looking for, a national king. You know, for many Sunday morning Christians, the Sunday crowd is about what Jesus can do for you, not what you can do for him. You find yourself asking, Jesus, what have you done for me lately? What are you going to give me? What aspect of prosperity? What aspect of peace are you going to give me? Are you going to take care of uh, my issues and my wants and my desires? Are you going to fulfill my every desire? And when he doesn't, when he doesn't, if you will, size up to what you're looking for, then we say, you know what? I'll try to get it on my own. I'll pursue my own. Are you a fair-weather Christian this morning? As I said, being a fair-weather Christian is being no Christian at all. Just because you're here on Sunday morning and a part of the great things that God does in the people and the church around you does not mean that you will one day stand in the presence of Almighty God forgiven. The Sunday crowd is just a crowd. It's a crowd that one day said some good things about Jesus but their motive seemingly was that of selfishness. So what are we to do? Where are we to go? How do we keep from being the Sunday crowd? Turn your Bibles to Luke. Here's the contrast. Luke 9, 23. I think it's, it's neat how these texts fit together. They're not supposed to. They're not connected in the Gospels. And yet... I love how Jesus starts out the text, the great confession that Peter uh, is about to give in verse 18, when once Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? Well, on Palm Sunday, they said, Jesus, you're the one in line with King David. You're the prophet. You're the Messiah, the one who is going to come. But that would change. And the crowds of Jerusalem would yell out something different at another time. So what does Jesus say? He asks, who do you say that I am? And they say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the great confession of Peter. And look at what Jesus says then. He says, hey, you're right. I am the Christ, but I'm not the kind of Christ that you've been looking for. I'm not the conquering king of nations. 
but I am the suffering servant. Notice what he says. The Son of Man, in verse 22, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The people didn't understand that. And Jesus says, I want you to understand who I am. If you're going to buy into me, you need to buy into the right Jesus. Some of us this morning have bought into Jesus. The problem is it isn't the right Jesus. It's the Jesus of your own making. And what does Jesus say? Here's here's what it is. I'm going to die, but I will be raised. And here's your job. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. How do we keep from being this, uh, the Sunday crowd? We become a spiritually committed people. It involves becoming spiritually committed. See, just because of the triumphal entry didn't mean that uh, you're saved. Just because you were a part of a great event. But it involves being committed to that event. In the Gospels, we would see the disciples be spiritually committed people. Now, I want you to understand something. Just because you're spiritually committed doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. The disciples, as we see after Jesus uh, dies and is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, they are committed. They are the ones who start the church and through the power of the Holy Spirit do great things for Christ. But that doesn't mean that they would not run in fear when Jesus was arrested, that they would not deny Jesus as Peter did three different times. Spiritually committed people still sin. So what does a spiritually committed life look like? Let's look at it very quickly. It begins, first of all, with people who are selfless. With people who are selfless. Understand, you want to be involved in a spiritually committed life? It's for anybody. Look at what the text tells us. If anyone would come after me, how do you get there? Is it offered to the spiritually elite? No. Is it offered to those who um, are at a certain age? No. Is there an educational requirement to following Christ? No. It begins with a life that says it's not about me, but it's about you, Jesus. It's all about you. This begins coming after Jesus. You want to come after me? Then you have to commit yourself to me, is what Jesus is saying. It's the idea of submission. It's the idea that you can no longer be at the front of the line. That Jesus doesn't revolve around you in your orbit, but it is you who orbit around him. Jesus is the center. You are not. Jesus is the one who matters, and him alone. He's the star of the show. It's all about him. It's not about you. You want to follow Jesus Christ? You want to come after him? Then it begins by giving him pre, pre, uh, preeminence and becoming, allowing him to become the predominant force in your life. Many times we begin to think as we follow Jesus that we bring something to the table. Man, if Jesus didn't have me, what would he do? 
If Jesus didn't have me in the positions that I'm in, if Jesus didn't have my giftedness working for him, where would Jesus be? And that's the wrong kind of thought because Jesus says, you must come after me. You want to follow me? Then it means you becoming low. It's about denying ourselves. It's not our will, but God's will. It's not our plans, as in the book of James says, but it's God's plans. It isn't our lives, but it's God living through us. It's all about Jesus. It isn't just Jesus on Sunday, but it's about us being selfless every day of our lives. My friends, if we want to be spiritually committed people and not the crowd, then it means we must be vessels in the master's home being used by God in the ways that he would prescribe. Next, it involves being willing to sacrifice. Notice what it says in 923. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross. What does it mean to take up the cross? Hasn't Jesus already done that? Yes, Jesus took up his cross. But we can't just have the Palm Sunday Jesus. We just can't have the John 5 Jesus where Jesus feeds the 5,000. We can't have the miracle Jesus. We can't have the great teaching Jesus, the calming of the storm Jesus, the Jesus that in many ways becomes a celestial genie. But we have to take the Jesus who's beaten, the Jesus that is abused, the Jesus that is reviled, the Jesus that is hated. We have to take the Jesus that finds himself hanging on a cross. Jesus says, you want to follow after me? Then it's time you lay down your life and you take up my cross. It means giving yourself over to him. It goes beyond that because we must not only be a part of those things as spectators, but Paul says this, let me fellowship in his sufferings. The idea of Christianity is that we will participate in the sufferings of Christ. But what else do we see? It's a life that is dedicated to service. It says we must follow. If anyone come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Notice this isn't a one-time thing. This isn't just one time during a holy week that we do this, but it's done daily. And it means dedicating ourselves to service, that we're following him. If we say that we love him, if we are going to announce as they did on Palm Sunday, all these wonderful things, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then we must follow his commands. We must obey him. We must do as he said. There are a lot of us who are in the crowd who have not obeyed. There are some in the crowd who are unwilling to take up the cross. Let me give you some points of perspective. And I don't mean to be legalistic, but just as the word declares. Some of us say we love him and we fail to obey his commands. We say on Sunday, we love you, Jesus. We're with you, Jesus. But then on Monday through Friday, we live like the devil. Oh, we don't do it when anybody's watching, but we do it when everybody is gone. Some of us say we love Jesus and have never shown that love 
in the waters of baptism. And you say, well, I got excuses for it. I don't speak well in front of people. I don't want everybody to see me all wet. I I don't want to do that. And I would say, if you love Jesus, you obey his command. It says that they repented and were baptized. It's not a suggestion, my friends. It's a command. Some of us are living like the crowd, spectating. Jesus says, if you love me, then you'll become like me. When a student is fully taught, he will become like his teacher. How much are you like Jesus? You follow the teachings of Jesus? How much are you like him? Are you following him that you will tell others about him? Are you following him that you will give all your possessions to him? Are you following him that you will leave father and mother and follow Jesus Christ? This is radical discipleship. This is not a fair weather uh, assessment of what's going on. You see, we in Christianity, especially here in America, have a Burger King type uh, theology. Have it my way right away. And Jesus says, if that's what you think your Christianity is all about, then you're on your way to hell and you're starting to smell like smoke. Talk about flame broiled. That was funny. It's not really funny, but the joke was funny. Are you committed this morning? Or are you a part of that Palm Sunday crowd? Spiritually committed people bow the knee to Jesus. Not just once, but every day. Spiritually committed people give their life over to Jesus, not just once, but every day. Spiritually committed people love the word of God. Spiritually committed people love to serve God. Spiritually committed people love to proclaim God. They help those in need. They put others first. They're good stewards of what God has given them. And they accept what God gives them, whether it is the worst suffering or the greatest pleasure. Are you a spiritually committed person this morning? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Without this type of dying to self and following of Christ, Jesus said it right. We will gain this whole world and we will lose our soul. What type of person are you this morning?